You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. And good morning, church. Good to see you. So good to see you. Welcome online. Uh, so great to be together this morning. If you got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, as we continue this morning in our series entitled Return, where we are looking at some of the lives of the kings of ancient Judah, as well as God's call to his people to return to him. And I want to begin with this this morning, um, that all of us, all of us, deep down, have something inside of us that profoundly impacts how we live that if somehow we could see into each other's hearts this morning, we would see that, that we all have the same thing. And here it is. It's a profound longing for security and for satisfaction. This is something that just seems to be hardwired into us. There's nobody here that wants to be more insecure or more unsatisfied. We all long for security. We all want to feel safe. We all want to feel protected. We want to, we want to feel like we're at rest, like we are secure in something. We also long for satisfaction. We all want to be in awe of something. We want to be content in something. We want to delight in something. We want to be satisfied in something. And listen, the greatest determining factor in how secure and satisfied we all feel is this where we seek it. The greatest determining factor in how secure and satisfied we are is where we seek it. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, that God has placed eternity into the heart of man. Again, that's Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has placed eternity in the heart of man. In other words, we all have this sense that this is not all that there is. That there's something far more than this. That eternity is a reality. And here's what we're going to see today. That set over all of eternity is the eternal one. God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers to us what our hearts long for the most, which is this. Eternal security and eternal satisfaction. Look what Jesus says about this up on the screen, Luke 21, he's speaking to his disciples here, and he tells them, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair on your head will perish. He's telling them that that you're going to be hated, And, and some of you they're even going to kill, but listen, not a hair on your head will perish. They're going to kill you, but not a hair on your head will perish. Why? Because if they kill you, then you will rise back up at the resurrection. If they kill you, you will be brought straight into the presence of God. Yes, you might suffer in this life, but you are eternally safe. You are eternally secure. Receive that today in Jesus Christ. Because only in Jesus Christ do we find eternal security. But not only that, 
In Jesus Christ, we also find this, eternal satisfaction. Psalm 73 says this up on the screen, Asaph, David's worship leader, he says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So Asaph, he has been looking around. He's been in a very bad place in this psalm. But now he goes into the the sanctuary of God. He meets with God. And now he says, who have I in heaven but you? Like, God, you are ultimate in heaven. You are what's so great about heaven. You are the treasure. You are the satisfaction of heaven. Therefore, he says, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Not only are you the greatest in heaven, obviously you are the greatest here right now. You are the ultimate satisfaction, he says. He's like, my my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he's my portion. He's my portion forever and ever and ever. Eternal security and eternal satisfaction. Something far beyond anything that this world can offer is what our hearts truly long for. And it can only be found in Jesus Christ. And yet... If you're anything like me, then isn't it true that so often we find ourselves looking for security and looking for satisfaction in all kinds of other places, inevitably leading to just chaos in our lives? As we look for security and satisfaction in places like money or possessions, buying that next thing or entertainment or people, Here's the danger in that, that if we exalt these things in our hearts as the source of our security, as the source of our satisfaction, then not only will we come up empty every single time, but we will also find ourselves spiraling downward into sorrow. The Apostle John warns us of this up on the screen. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, why would he say that. Why would he say keep yourselves from idols? Like, isn't idolatry an Old Testament problem? Isn't idolatry like a statue worshiping problem? Why would John say to the church, keep yourself from idols? Well, in Colossians 3, Paul tells us why up on the screen. Look what he says. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, what's that? It's when we want something so bad that it crosses the line into worship. It's when we want something so bad, we we just long for this thing so bad that we, we love it more than we are loving God in that moment. We are desiring it more than we desire God. We are trusting in that thing to give us something that only God can give us. We are putting our security and our hope and our satisfaction in something other than God. That's covetousness. It is idolatry. Tim Keller, he puts it this way up on the screen. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's that's an idol. That's an idol. In other words, an idol is anything that we seek our security or satisfaction in apart from God. And again, here's the danger. That if we look for security or satisfaction in things like money, 
or, or the next thing that we could buy or in, in the, the multitude of different forms of entertainment or, or in people, then not only will God be dishonored by that and not only will we come up empty every single time, but our sorrows will multiply and multiply and multiply. Psalm 16 up on the screen, King David, look what he says. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It's a guarantee. It's a certainty. Idolatry is the path to sorrow. Idolatry is the superhighway to absolute misery because idols can't deliver what we truly long for. In fact, all they can do is lead us further and further away from what we truly long for. So let me ask you, what is the greatest rival to God in your heart? What are you tempted to love or to trust in more than God? What are you tempted to seek your security in? What are you tempted to seek your satisfaction in apart from God? Do you know? Is anything coming to mind even right now? Well, that leads us into our first point today, which is this. I must recognize that my heart is prone to stop worshiping God and to start worshiping idols. I have to realize that. My heart is prone to stop worshiping God and to start worshiping idols. Have a look with me now at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1, as we now look at the life of Manasseh. Hold on, it's a wild ride. Verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now Manasseh was the grandson of King Ahaz. And 2 Chronicles chapter 28 tells us a little bit about King Ahaz. Here's his resume up on the screen. Uh, So here's what he did. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He made metal images for Baals. He burned his sons as an offering. He made offerings on the high places. He cut the vessels of the house of God into pieces. He closed the temple. He made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. So that's the resume of Manasseh's grandfather, Ahaz. Not good. Really bad. Up next, we have Manasseh's father, so the son of Ahaz, and his name was Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, for the most part, was a very godly king. Second Chronicles 29 through 31 tells us about Hezekiah up on the screen. Here's his resume. He reopened the temple. He reinstituted the worship of God. And he destroyed all of the altars to false gods. Good resume. Very good resume. Hezekiah was a good king. But, but, he died when Manasseh was only 12 years old which may have been a gracious mercy for Hezekiah because he never had to see who his son became. One commentator puts it this way, it would be far better to die childless than have a son like Manasseh. And yet, 
Manasseh had the longest reign of any king of Judah. He reigned for 55 years. And for the most part, it was a reign of the most horrific evil and terror imaginable. And here's why. Because his reign was characterized by idolatry. Have a look now at verse 2. Look what it says about Manasseh. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So when God brought his people out of Egypt and, and to the promised land, the land was filled with people. It was filled with Canaanites. And, and the Canaanites worshipped all kinds of false gods in the most horrific ways that you can imagine, including with all kinds of practices of sexual morality as well as human sacrifice. And this, this was the type of idol worship that Manasseh pursued after his father died. After the death of Hezekiah, Manasseh turned away from the Lord, he stopped worshiping God, and he started worshiping idols just like the Canaanites, just like his grandfather had done, but he took it to a whole new level. Look at verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. So high places here, it literally just means that. It's like any kind of elevated piece of ground, like a hill. This is where people would build altars. They would build statues of their false gods and, and use that as worship. Hezekiah had all of those torn down. Manasseh built them all back up again. Verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals. Now, for the Canaanites, the false god that they called Baal, which is translated Lord, was their supreme false deity. They believed that Baal was the sun god who could give them successful crops and therefore financial prosperity. They believed that he was the fertility god who could give them lots of children. They, they believed that he was the storm god and the god of war who could give them victory over their enemies. And, and the Canaanites believed that if they worshipped Baal the way that Baal wanted, then Baal would give them what they wanted. They believed that if they made a statue of Baal or altars to Baal and worshipped with forms of sexual morality or even human sacrifice that Baal would give them crops and financial prosperity and children and military victories and ultimately this, the security and the satisfaction that they longed for. Hezekiah had purged Judah of all Baal worship. Manasseh brought it all back again. He also did this again, verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down and he erected altars to the Baals and made... Asheroth. Now the false god Asheroth, also known as Asherah, uh, this was the Canaanite's supreme goddess. They believed that she was the moon goddess who could give them successful crops and financial prosperity. That she was the fertility goddess who could give them lots of children. That she was the goddess of war who could give them victory over their enemies. And they believed that if they worshipped Asherah the way that she wanted, then Asherah would give them what they wanted. They believed that if they found the kind of the right tree and cut off all the limbs and made it into kind of a stump and then sort of carved it into the form of a woman and then worshipped it with different forms of sexual morality, that Asherah would give them crops and financial prosperity and children and military victories and ultimately the security and the satisfaction 
that they longed for. Hezekiah had purged Judah of all worship of Asherah. Manasseh brought it all back again. Look what else he did, verse 3. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So Manasseh rebuilt the high places. He worshipped Baal. He worshipped Asherah. But now we also see that he worshipped the stars as gods as well. And where did he do that? Look at verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. So Manasseh built altars to his false star gods in the temple. In the temple. I mean, of all the places he could build these altars, he chose to build them in God's temple. Verse 5. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So the temple had two courts. There's the outer court, which was called the court of the people. Then there was the inner court, that was the court of the priests. Both of these courts exist for one reason, the worship of God. But Manasseh has built altars in both courts so that he and all the people of Judah can come and worship these false star gods in the temple, hoping that these false star gods will give them what they want. Security and satisfaction. Tragically, Manasseh's idolatry doesn't stop there either. Look at verse 6. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now the Hinnom Valley is located just outside of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of what it looks like now. So, looks nice now. But in this place, horrific, unimaginable horrors took place. Because this is the location where Manasseh and the people of Judah sacrificed their own children to the false gods Moloch and Baal because they believed that if they worshipped their false gods in this unthinkably horrific way that Moloch and Baal would give them what they wanted, which is ultimately this, the security and the satisfaction that they longed for. And Manasseh doesn't even stop there. Look again at verse 6 and And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. So Manasseh, he also embraced every form of occult practice. He set up a satanic council who called upon demons, who cast spells, who practiced witchcraft, and who sought to communicate with the dead. In other words, verse 6, look what it says. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And I'm, I'm just reading through this. Man, it's like, it's painful. It's like, it's like dental surgery. It's like you're sitting in the chair. It's like, this has got to be over soon. Like, surely this can't go on much longer than this. And yet, it's not over. He did more. Look at verse 7. The carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God. Now, the idol here that's being referred to is the idol of Asherah that Manasseh had made. And most commentators agree that the place in the temple that he put it was in the holy place, in the temple, up on the screen. So here we have the outer court where he built altars to the stars and then the inner court where he built altars to the stars. But then he took his idol of Asherah and he put it right here 
in the holy place. I mean, this is the place that is set apart. It's set apart to be a reminder of the presence of God with his people. Manasseh sets in the holy place, this idol of Asherah. I mean, is there anything that he could have done that's more offensive to God than to bring an idol into the temple to worship? Verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. I mean, just consider that statement. The evil idol-worshiping nations that were in the promised land when God's people arrived that the Lord judged and destroyed were less evil than the people of Judah had now become. And Manasseh was the one responsible for leading them there. And again, that's not all he did. The surgery continues. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to the people, but they paid no attention. So God, in his mercy, he calls out to Manasseh. He calls out to the people. He calls them to repent of their idolatry. He calls them to return to him, but they did not listen. God sent them prophets, including the prophet Isaiah, calling them to return to the Lord. But Manasseh and the people of Judah, they paid no attention. In fact, it's even worse than that. 2 Kings 21 uh, describes how Manasseh treated, Manasseh treated God's messengers up on the screen. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Which means this, that Manasseh killed God's messengers and everyone who opposed him. The Jewish historian Josephus said that Manasseh cruelly put to death all the righteous among the Hebrews and did not even spare the prophets. In fact, Jewish tradition suggests that Manasseh was the one who had the prophet Isaiah put to death in a way that really couldn't have been any more brutal. And here's why. Here's why. All of this. Here's why. Because Manasseh loved his idols. He trusted in his idols. This is why he worshiped them. This is why he brought them into the temple of God. Now the Apostle Paul has some things to say about the temple of God up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He continues in chapter 6 up on the screen. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In other words, you and I are the temple of God. You and I are the temple of God. Which begs the question are there idols in the temple? Have we brought, have we? brought idols into the temple? Are there altars in the courts? Has an idol been set up in the holy place? Well, how do we know? Up on the screen. This is the pattern of worship that God is calling us to. We all have a desire in us. We are hardwired to seek security and satisfaction. And here's what the Lord is calling us to. To seek it in him. 
to exalt God in our hearts as the only true source of security and satisfaction. He's calling us to go to him for this reason. That he would give us himself. He's calling us to go to him, to exalt him, that we might go to God and receive him. Him. I mean, this is what the gospel is all about. Christ died to bring us to God. I mean, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ came came from heaven to earth, that he gave himself over to be tortured and brutalized and then crucified so that all of the sin of all of those who would ever place their faith in him would be transferred to him and the wrath of God that we deserve would be poured out on him until it was finished, until he made full atonement for all of our sin so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven. We can be made clean so that we could then be brought into the presence of God. That's the gospel. And if you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you too can be forgiven. You too can be made clean by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on that cross. Forgiveness of sins for all who will believe. We crave security and satisfaction. God calls us to to exalt him in our hearts as the true source of real security and real satisfaction. We go to him that we can have himself, specifically this. His presence. His perfect, all-satisfying love. His amazing grace. His friendship. His fellowship. His absolute and total sufficiency. This is what we need. This is what we long for. And then here's the outcome. That we would experience eternal security and eternal satisfaction in him. This is the pattern of worship that God is calling us to. And I'd love to be able to say that this is the pattern I always follow, but it's not true. This is the pattern I'm called to follow. This is the pattern I want to follow. This is the pattern that Manasseh followed. He too longed for security and for satisfaction, but instead of going to God, he went to Baal. He went to Asherah. He exalted Baal and Asherah in his heart as the ones he thought could give him real security and satisfaction. So what does he want from Baal and Asherah? He wants this. He wants crops. He wants children. He wants victories. But here's the inevitable result. Increasing sorrow. And why? Here's why. Because Baal and Asherah can never give any real security or satisfaction. All the crops and children and victories in the world can never give any real security or satisfaction. It only leads to increasing sorrow. Because because as as we walk in that kind of idolatry, as Manasseh walked in this kind of idolatry, it just leads him further and further away from the true source of real security and satisfaction. Further and further away he goes. And how do we know that Manasseh experienced increasing sorrow? Here's how we know. Because he just kept accumulating more false gods. If Baal would have been enough, he wouldn't have needed Asherah. If Asherah would have been enough, he wouldn't have needed Moloch. If Moloch wouldn't have been enough, he wouldn't have needed star gods. Now, we don't worship Baal or Asherah. But what are we tempted to worship? What are you and I tempted to worship? Well, here's one. Money and possessions. We long for security and satisfaction. Instead of going to God, so often we can go to money and we can go to possessions. We can exalt money and possessions as our heart and we believe that that's that's the source of real security. I'm going to find my security in money 
I'm going to find my satisfaction in that next thing that I just need to buy. That those things are exalted in our hearts. And this is what we want for money and possessions. We want some form of comfort, some form of pleasure, some form of happiness. But the inevitable result is increasing sorrow. And here's why. Because money and possessions can never provide any real security or satisfaction. The kind of comfort or pleasure or happiness that money and possessions provides can never give us any real security or satisfaction. It only leads to increasing sorrow because our idolatry leads us further and further away from Jesus Christ. How about this? Entertainment. Here's a big one. Seeking our satisfaction in entertainment. Exalting entertainment. This is what's going to satisfy my heart. This is where satisfaction is done. Here's what we look for in entertainment. Some degree of comfort. Some degree of pleasure. Some degree of happiness. But the inevitable result is increasing sorrow. Because entertainment can never provide us with real satisfaction. The kind of comfort and pleasure and happiness that entertainment provides can never give us any real satisfaction. It only leads to increasing sorrow. As we walk in idolatry and we go further and further away from the true source of real satisfaction. And maybe the biggest one of all, maybe. People. Maybe. Where we are desiring security and satisfaction, so we exalt people in our hearts. And maybe, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a boss. We, we exalt people as, as the source of our security. We exalt people as the source of our satisfaction. And here's what we want from people. We want love. We want their love. We want their respect. That's a big one. We want their respect. We want recognition. We want approval. We want validation. But the inevitable result is increasing sorrow. Because people can never provide us with real security or satisfaction. The kind of love or respect or recognition or approval or validation that comes from people can never provide us with any real security or satisfaction. It always and only leads to increasing sorrow as our idolatry leads us further and further away from Jesus Christ, the true source of eternal security and eternal satisfaction. So question, can we see this? Can we see it in our lives upon the screen? Can we see that we're going to money or possessions or entertainment or people looking for security and satisfaction leading to increasing sorrow? Because the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Ask yourself, is this happening in my life? Ask yourself, as I have been doing this week, are there idols in the temple? If so, what are they? Name them. We're going to leave this slide up on the screen for maybe just 20 or 30 seconds. Let's just take a moment right now just to pause, to consider, to reflect, and to confess to the Lord. If we've been seeking our security or satisfaction in something other than him, let's just take 20 or 30 seconds right now to do that. Well, that leads us right into our second and our final point today, which is this. I must repent 
of worshiping idols and return to worshiping God. I must repent of worshiping idols and return to worshiping God. Have a look with me now at verse 11. Look how God responds to all of Manasseh's idolatry. Look what happens. Verse 11. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now notice first that all of this is coming from the Lord. Verse 11 says, The Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. And so, and so God called out to Manasseh to repent of his idolatry. God called out to Manasseh to return, but he refused to listen. So now God is doing the only thing that is actually going to get Manasseh's attention. He sends in a whole army. He sends in the army of Assyria. So just picture it. As the soldiers, they begin to flood into Jerusalem. The commanders are looking around for Manasseh. They find him and they bind him in chains. And most commentators believe they then took a hook and put it through his nose and led him away by it in absolute humiliation into captivity. And now verse 12. Praise the Lord for verse 12. The surgery is over. Here we go. Look what it says. Verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So in this moment, in his imprisonment, in his exile, in the solitude of all of his suffering, a miracle takes place, a glorious miracle where Manasseh turns to God and he prays. And notice that it says, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, his God. So Manasseh, the most evil, the most wicked, the most brutal king that Judah has ever had, in this moment, he breaks. He totally breaks before the Lord. And he calls out now to the God of his father, Hezekiah. He calls out to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in this moment, the one true God becomes his God. The one true God becomes his God. And all of the evil that Manasseh has done against his God, rebuilding the high places, making altars to Baal, building altars in the temple, putting an Asherah in the holy place, burning his sons, witchcraft, filling Jerusalem with blood, leading Judah to do more evil than the Canaanite nations. No doubt it all comes flooding into his mind in this moment like an avalanche. How does he respond? Look again at verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. Look at this. And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Manasseh knows in this moment he is beyond guilty. He knows he deserves nothing but death, but he also knows this, that God has mercifully kept him alive and has disciplined him in order to bring about this moment right now. And Manasseh responds to God's amazing mercy by humbling himself greatly before God. And in this moment, in his chains, with his soul bowed down before the Lord, humbling himself greatly. Manasseh is more free than he has ever been in his entire life. And here's why. 
because he has returned to the Lord. He has returned to the Lord. And now the Lord is exalted in his heart above the false gods. And Manasseh is set free from the grip of Moloch and Baal and Asherah and the stars. As he turns now to his God and prays a prayer of repentance. And we don't know what he said to God. But look at how God responds in verse 13. Verse 13. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So so God not only heard Manasseh's prayer, but God was actually moved by Manasseh's prayer. Think about that. God's heart was moved by the prayer of Manasseh because Manasseh's humility was real. His repentance was genuine. His prayer moved the heart of God, not only to forgive Manasseh, but also to then restore him. And so God in his sovereignty and his power, he causes Manasseh to be released and to be sent back to Jerusalem and then set back on the throne of Judah. But now, now Manasseh is a different man. This new Manasseh, he only knows one thing. He only cares about one thing. Do you see it there in verse 13? Look at the end of verse 13. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. All that Manasseh knows is the Lord is God. The Lord is God. That's all he knows. That's all that matters. And knowing this one thing, this one thing profoundly and powerfully changes everything. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of of Jehon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. So the first thing that Manasseh does when he returns is he builds this huge wall around Jerusalem. So consider it. The old Manasseh filled Jerusalem with blood. The new Manasseh builds a wall around Jerusalem to protect it. Why? Here's why. Because he knows that the Lord is God. Look what he does next, verse 15. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them all outside the city. The old Manasseh built altars in high places. He built altars in the courts of the Lord. He put an Asherah in the holy place. The new Manasseh, the new Manasseh, he tears down the idols in the high places. He tears down the idols in the temple courts. He removes the Asherah from the temple. He throws it all outside the city because he knows that the Lord is God. And he's not done yet. Verse 16. And he restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. Again, the old Manasseh made horrific sacrifices to idols. The new Manasseh makes sacrifices of thanksgiving to God because he knows that the Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. Verse 16, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The old Manasseh led the people to do more evil than the Canaanite nations. The new Manasseh commands the people to serve the Lord because he knows that the Lord is God. 
The Lord is God. And so here's what's happening in his heart. The worship of God that's happening on the inside is now producing all of these good works on the outside. He knows that the Lord is God. So he's worshiping the Lord on the inside in his heart and that worship is then leading him then to serve God on the outside with his works. And because he knows that the Lord is God, he commands all of Judah to worship the Lord and not idols, to serve the Lord and not idols. And he's calling them all, all of Judah, to this whole new pattern of worship, to worship God alone and not idols. So question, which of these two patterns of worship up on the screen would you say best describes your pattern of worship. Because again, here's what the Lord is calling us to. We, we desire security and satisfaction. He's calling us to himself, to find that in himself so that we might experience eternal security and eternal satisfaction and experience that worship of God in our hearts that then leads to serving the Lord. I wish I could say that this was always my pattern of worship, but it's not. Here's the other pattern of worship where we're seeking security and satisfaction in money, possessions, entertainment, people, leading to increasing sorrows, leading to this repetitive cycle of idolatry. Just going back again and again and again and again and again, more and more sorrow. Which one of these two patterns of worship would you say is your pattern of worship? What's the most prominent pattern of worship in your life? This one or this one? And maybe the more important question is how do we see less of this and more of this? How do we move from here more and more to here? Well, here's how. Here's how. Like Manasseh, we must exalt God over all idols. Uh, we, we, we must preach the truth to our hearts for real, that the Lord is God. The Lord is God. So yes, God has given us all kinds of good things to enjoy. Yes, he has. But he has not given us good things to worship. Yes, God has given all, all kinds of good things for us to enjoy. But he has not given us anything to seek our security or our satisfaction in. He's given us himself. That's the gospel. He's given us himself that we might experience eternal security and eternal satisfaction in him. We need to preach this to our hearts that the eternal security, that the eternal satisfaction that our hearts so long for is only found in him. It can't be found in money. It can't be found in possessions. It can't be found in entertainment. It can't be found in people. We need to preach this to our hearts. I need to preach this to my heart over and over and over again and exalt the Lord over every idol. Maybe even naming those idols and exalting the Lord over those idols, preaching this to our hearts that he is all we need. He is all we need. And then we need to experience what we're preaching. We need to actually experience what we're preaching. We need to go to God. We need to spend time with God in his presence, in his word, in prayer, and experience that eternal security and eternal satisfaction that is only found in him. And God is holding out to us today all that our hearts long for in him. 
God is literally holding out to us today all that our hearts long for in him, but we must go and find it in him. And if this is your desire today, to cast idols out of the temple and to return to the Lord in worship with an undivided heart, then I would invite you to take a moment right now with him. Right now. You can say to him, Lord, I've been seeking my security. I've been seeking my satisfaction in other things. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's certain possessions, just buying that thing. Maybe it's a certain form of entertainment. Maybe it's certain people. But Lord, I recognize that what I'm ultimately looking for, it can't be found there. It can't. Because what my heart really longs for is something far deeper, far greater. Because my heart longs for eternal security and eternal satisfaction. So Lord, I'm returning. I'm returning today. I'm returning to worship you. I'm turning away from that idol by returning to you. By exalting you over that idol. And seeking all I need in you. If that's your heart, you can take a moment right now, right now to seek the Lord to pray. And after a minute or two, the worship team will come up and they'll lead us in our final song. Let's go ahead and do that now.